In Craig Rochelle's book, Dangerous Prayers, he recounts this story. His friend had shouted, Hey, Craig, do you believe God still does miracles? Of course, I said. Good, because your prayers are so lame. I tried to laugh with him, but my friend's joke stung, mostly because he was right. We just left a prayer service together back when I started working in ministry. My buddy knew me well enough to tease me, but I suspect he was also making a point. Left speechless, I offered no defense as I processed the truth of his observation. I couldn't deny that he voiced a secret I already knew, but didn't want to admit. My prayers were pathetic. I wonder how many of us have pathetic prayer lives. There is no power in our prayers because we don't fully understand and accept the almighty power of God. What we believe about God directly affects how we pray and live out the Christian life. So it's important to be reminded of God's power and might, and we want to do so through studying some miracles of Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. In this new sermon series, we'll be studying specifically the seven miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. Each of these miracles give us a unique perspective into how God works His miraculous power and how we are to respond accordingly. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 2 as we study verses 1 to 12. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 as we study the first miracle of Jesus. Miracles were done by Jesus throughout His ministry to authenticate and validate His message of truth. So what we will see in this first miracle is the truth that Jesus, who is God, is worth trusting. Now look with me at verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. The third day referenced here is the third day after Nathanael met Jesus in John chapter 1, and there was now a wedding in the town of Cana. We're told that Jesus, Jesus' mother Mary, and Jesus' disciples were invited to the wedding. Presumably, the disciples invited to the wedding were only the first five disciples who are mentioned in chapter 1 as having followed Jesus at that time. What is interesting to note is that Jesus didn't shy away from social gatherings such as weddings. He was very much involved in the society in which he lived and did not fully separate himself from the people he wanted to teach truth and save. This is a reminder that living a godly life does not mean you have to separate yourself completely from the world. We are to be in the world to affect the world for Christ, not to be influenced by the world away from Christ. Now verse 3. And when they'd run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now there was a problem because the wedding party had run out of wine. We have to understand the cultural background to fully appreciate why this was such a big issue that necessitated Mary to ask Jesus to help. First, because there was no water purification systems back in those days, it was often safer to drink wine, which was fermented grape juice, often diluted with water, than just plain water. So you can say running out of wine was like running out of drinking water. Second, weddings in that culture often lasted several days, even up to a week, and it was the responsibility of the married couple to provide adequately for their guests for the entire duration the celebration lasted. If the wine had run out, it would have been a complete embarrassment for the couple, and the social disgrace and the stigma attached to the newlyweds and their families would be remembered by the community for a long time. To put it in our context, it's like inviting 300 people to a wedding reception, 
but only having enough food for 150 of those guests. How do you think the other 150 who are not able to eat would feel? And how offended would they be? You can just imagine how long they would remember that incident. This was not a good situation at all. And somehow Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to know of this problematic situation. So she told Jesus about this issue to see how he could help. Now you may be wondering, why would Mary bother Jesus with what seems to be an inconsequential issue for the Son of God to remedy? Yes, the social embarrassment is terrible, but compared to being healed of blindness or being able to walk again, there are much better uses of Jesus' divine power. But we have to remember that while Mary knew that her son was divine, verse 11 tells us clearly that up to this time, Jesus had done no miracles. He didn't do any miracles as a child, as a teenager, and even as an adult up to this point. Now, the heretical Gnostic book supposedly has young Jesus resurrecting a dead playmate, bringing to life birds of clay, and made a wood board grow longer because it was too short for his carpentry needs. But this would directly contradict what the Bible says, that up until this point, Jesus had performed no miracles. And the reason I'm stressing this point is that when Mary told Jesus about this problem and asked him to help, I don't believe she was necessarily asking Jesus to miraculously make more wine. Mary knew that her son was compassionate, capable, resourceful, and helpful, and he had with him his disciples. So perhaps Jesus could think of a way to help this couple, especially the groom, from experiencing great embarrassment. I think any one of us in a similar situation would want to try to help the couple, especially if we like the couple very much. I remember a few years ago when Cindy and I attended a wedding that even though the seats were assigned at the reception, someone who perhaps had not RSVP'd had taken our seats to sit with their friends, and the table was full. The surrounding tables were also full, so we were left standing there, and the wedding coordinator wasn't sure what to do as they could not accommodate us. Of course, we weren't offended, and we knew things like this happened. But do you bother the newlyweds with this issue? Of course not. Can you imagine if I went to where they were seated up on the stage and yelled, Where's my seat? My wife and I drove all the way from Quezon City to Makati, and we have no place to sit. How could you not take care of us since I officiated your wedding just a few hours ago? It would be thoroughly inappropriate for me to do so, and the newlyweds, I'm sure, would be thoroughly embarrassed. But that situation was resolved when we were about to quietly leave that another couple who was related to the newlyweds, noticed what was happening. They got up and insisted that we take their seats. And that was the end of the situation, with the guests themselves taking care of the situation quietly and quickly to avoid any embarrassment for the couple and their families. I think this is what Mary had in mind when she told Jesus about the problem and looked to Him for non-miraculous help. Now look at Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Our cursory reading of this verse may shock us. It seems that Jesus was being very rude to his mother with an attitude that was cold and aloof, seemingly detached. But that isn't the case as we see that Jesus does willingly help. But this is where things get quote-unquote lost in translation from the Greek to the English. 
So we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus calls his mother woman, or guna in the Greek, it wasn't inappropriate or disrespectful in that day. In fact, it was a kind, polite expression. There was nothing negative about calling her woman, unlike today. Can you imagine if as a child, your mother asked you to clean your room and your response was, woman, I don't think so. I'm sure you'd be in trouble. But this is a situation where we have to understand the culture of the day to not make the wrong interpretive assumption. Then we see that Jesus tells his mother, what does your concern have to do with me? This makes Jesus seem very aloof. But again, this is where things are lost in translation from Greek to English. This idiom or saying is often used in the Scriptures and is hard to translate, but it has the idea that your concerns and my concerns are not the same, being of different realms or differing responsibilities. Meaning Jesus was going to do His heavenly Father's will and follow His timing, and that took priority over the desires of those in the earthly realm. Simply put, the things of God take priority over the things of man. And how things are accomplished by God may be different from what the world expects. We see this later on in the life of Jesus, when dying on the cross for the sins of mankind was more important than overthrowing the corrupt and oppressive Roman government. And while his death was not what his followers wanted, it was what was needed in order to save the world by taking upon himself the sins of the world. In this situation, Jesus was telling his mother Mary, let me handle it in my own way and in my own time. It would not be as you expect it to be, with perhaps me going with my disciples quickly to the local ancient 7-Eleven or grocery store and getting some more wine for this couple. Look with me at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Did Mary completely disregard what Jesus had just said and insist something be done? No, Mary is not nagging or insisting, but humbly accepted what her son told her. She simply asked the servants in the household to be ready to follow whatever instruction her son gave. It was an instruction simply to be ready not to act until Jesus gave them instruction. This was Mary showing that she trusted in Jesus' ways and timing. She may not have fully understood what Jesus would do and when, but she was reminded through Jesus' words that she needs to trust the divine will of God in all things, even in a situation like there being no wine. She was saying, okay, Jesus, you are in charge. Servants, just listen to his instructions if he gives any. Now, putting it all together, we need to learn an important biblical principle here from the words of Jesus. Biblical principle number one, God's ways and timing do not necessarily coincide with our human expectations, so we need to learn to trust. God's ways and timing do not necessarily coincide with our human expectations, so we need to learn to trust. My friends, the more we try to be in control, the more we will lose control. Remember the chorus of the song, Jesus Take the Wheel? It goes something like this. Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands, because I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go, so give me one more chance and save me from this road I'm on. Oh, Jesus, take the wheel. The key thought in this course is because I can't do this on my own. Lord, you take control. I'm willing to trust in your ways and timing 
because human capacity and capabilities are limited. They've reached its end. In this situation, the wine had run out. There are no other human solutions that would prevent a great embarrassment of epic proportions. So, Lord, I just have to trust in your ways and timing and simply stand by for you to take control. I will trust in your timing and in your ways. I read now verses 6 to 8. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Apparently there were six water pots outside that held about 20 to 30 gallons of water apiece. So combined, that's about 120 to 180 gallons of water. What were the outside water pots for? These stone water pots, the Bible tells us, were used to hold water that the Jews needed for their ritual cleansing and ceremonial washing. This was not drinking water. This was water for the washing of feet and hands. This was water for washing up. And they were most likely empty or near empty because the guests had used that water before they went into the celebration. So now Jesus asked the servants to get water, presumably from a well, and fill the six water pots. And they did so as per Jesus' instruction to the brim. Then Jesus asked the servants to draw out some of the water from the water pots and take it to the master of the feast who was in charge of the logistics associated with the wedding festivities to take a drink. Now let's stop here and think how unconventional and unorthodox this instruction from Jesus to the servants was. While filling the water pots with water for cleansing wasn't too odd a request, to take some of that water and have your boss drink it was another thing. As previously mentioned, this was water for washing, not for drinking. Would any of you drink water from an outside timba, pail, or a tabo, dipper? I certainly would not. I couldn't even do it as a joke on someone else. And yet this is essentially what Jesus asked the servants to do, and they were asked to do it by faith. Jesus didn't announce to the servants that he had already turned the water into wine. He didn't ask them to taste the liquid first to show them it was no longer washing water, but now the finest of wines. He simply instructed them to bring the liquid to their boss and for him to drink it. They could have lost their job or be severely punished if this was some kind of cruel joke. But what we see here is faith and trust in Jesus, God's Son, God Himself, whose instructions may be unusual and unconventional. And this is our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. God's ways and timing may be unusual and unconventional, but He knows what He's doing. God's ways and timing may be unusual and unconventional, but He knows what He's doing. My friends, in lessons of trust, we need to remember that part of trusting is not always fully understanding. If we always understand how everything works, then we may not need to trust God and trust the journey He takes us on. Remember when the people of Israel were escaping from Egypt with Moses leading them? They had gotten to the Red Sea and could go no further and the armies of Egypt were coming from behind to attack them. What did God ask Moses to do? God asked Moses to simply stretch out his hands to part the Red Sea. Now, the common sense thing to do would have been to take up defensive positions against the armies of Egypt, or to try to put as many people onto boats that they could find, 
or to simply just run. But by faith, Moses stretched out his hands and the sea parted, and the Israelites walked across to safety while the waters came down upon the Egyptians. Look what was written in Exodus chapter 14, verses 30 to 31. Exodus chapter 14, verses 30 to 31. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. The result was faith and trust in a God who does things in an unconventional manner. And we see this throughout the Scriptures when God asked Joshua to have his people march around the city of Jericho so that the walls would fall by itself, or instructing that Naaman dip himself seven times in the river Jordan and his leprosy would be cured. We trust God not because we know and fully understand his plans for us and agree to it. We trust because God is all-powerful and he knows what he's doing. So when he asks us to do something, especially what is explicitly stated in the Bible, then we do it, however unusual or unconventional. Things like loving your enemies, praying for them, working towards heavenly treasures and rewards and not earthly ones. These are the things we are to trust God and do. Speaking of unconventional ways, you know God has a great sense of humor. The Bible contains as much wit and comedy as any sitcom or late-night show but in a way that God still communicates important messages through the laughter. Here are five unconventional ways God used humor to make a point. The first is irony. Jonah, a spokesperson for God, ran the opposite direction God told him to go. He feared people would reject or kill him. But when God brought Jonah to the very place he tried to run away from, the people eagerly accepted the message even after Jonah's half-hearted delivery. Then we have hyperbole. Jesus used obvious overstatements to insist that it's foolish to try to fix someone else's problem if you haven't gotten help for your own similar problems, Luke chapter 6. And then we have sarcasm. A group of pagan worshipers challenge Elijah, a prophet of God, to see whose deity could perform the best miracle. When the pagans got no response from their false god, Elijah sarcastically mocked them, saying, their God must be asleep, on vacation, or using the bathroom, 1 Kings chapter 18 tells us. And then we have absurdity. While a man named Balaam was on his way to an enemy camp, an angel blocked the path. The donkey Balaam rode on saw the angel and stopped, but Balaam urged the donkey forward because he couldn't see the angel. And so God enabled the donkey to speak to Balaam, as Numbers chapter 22 recounts. Sometimes we're so stubborn that God has to do crazy things to get our attention, like getting a donkey to speak. And then fifth, we have pranks. A nation that opposed Israel captured the Ark of the Covenant, an artifact that symbolized God's presence, and placed it in a temple devoted to a pagan god, as 1 Samuel chapter 5 tells us. The pagan idol fell face down before the Ark, not once, but twice. And on the second time, the idol's head and hands broke off. As someone wrote, faith and funny aren't mutually exclusive. You see, God can even use humorous moments to teach and lead us. And as with everything, He knows what He's doing. I've already told you 
I had three no's in my life. I told God I would, number one, never be a pastor. Number two, never marry someone Asian. And number three, never return back to the Philippines. I told God my plans, and he probably just laughed and said, let's see about that. All three things happened in my life in unique ways, but for which I'm very glad it did. Remember what Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 34 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of God, or who has become His counselor? Indeed, God's ways and timing may be unusual and unconventional, but He knows what He's doing. Look with me now at verse 9 of John chapter 2. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. So the servants did as Jesus instructed and let the master of the feast or the head waiter taste what they assumed to be the outdoor washing water, but had been miraculously turned into wine. When the master of the feast had a taste, he was so impressed, he called the groom over and told him that in most weddings, the good wine is served at the beginning when people have not drunk so much and were not inebriated that they can more fully appreciate the quality of the wine. However, to the surprise of the head waiter, without knowing what Jesus had done, commented that the groom had kept the best wine until the end, pointing to the quality of Jesus' wine. You see, what is being stressed is that when God provides through His ways and His timing, it is always the best. The God who loves all people and desires to show His grace always provides the best. There is never a time when God does not provide His best for the people He loves. Now, His best may not be what we believe to be the best for us, but whatever it is, it is still the best for us, whether we know about it or agree with it. Like I've said before, if God gave us everything we asked for when we wanted it, whether it be something related to college, education, job, spouse, friends, profession, promotion, business, it would not have been what was best for us. I like what Marilyn Johnson writes. When we face the heartache of rejection, the feeling of missing out, or the realization that our hopes and dreams may go unfulfilled, it may bring little comfort to label the pain as something, quote-unquote, working for our good. It does require time to process and grieve. But in those moments, we can cling to the promise that God has not forgotten what He has started in us, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He does not delight in seeing us feel hopeless. He has plans for us in every disappointment that will accomplish His good purposes, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And in His providence, the process is often as good or better than any outcome. God may say no to some of your requests, if so, that mysterious mercy is His best for you today. He may carry you through a season of uncertainty about what will come next. If so, the waiting and seeking is God's best for you today. He may ask you to uproot something in your life and move on to something new and different. If so, this guidance and provision is His best for you today. 
He may show you a new dream to follow. If so, this inspiration and redirection is God's best for you today. He may call you to say exactly where you are for now, however uncomfortable that might be. If so, this assignment is God's best for you today. He may one day fill our lives with the good and honorable things we've been asking for. But even if He doesn't, what He has chosen to give us is His best for us, at least for today. My friends, if God doesn't give, it's for our good. You see, our third biblical principle is this, biblical principle number three. God's ways and timing are always for our best, even if we don't receive what we initially ask for. God's ways and timing are always for our best, even if we don't receive what we initially ask for. There are now six water pots full of the best quality wine, some 120 to 180 gallons of wine. So I did some calculations. 180 gallons of wine is about 900 standard bottles of 750 milliliter wine bottles. And I looked at the most expensive bottle of wine at Del Frisco Steakhouse in the U.S., and it went for about $5,000 a bottle. So at today's restaurant price, that's about $4.5 million of wine or 225 million pesos worth of wine that Jesus turned washing water into. Just imagine if that is what Jesus can do with washing water, what can He do with you? I'm not sure what Mary had in mind for Jesus to do when she first asked Him to help the newlyweds in their situation. Like I said, it could have been as simple as going to the local store to get some more wine or asking some friends and neighbors for some wine. But I don't think she ever imagined Jesus giving this couple 180 gallons of the best wine in all the world to serve to their guest. My friends, God's ways and timing are always for our best, even if we don't receive what we initially ask for. As Kyle Winkler writes, perhaps you've heard the popular parable about the man stuck on his rooftop during a flood. After he prayed to God for help, a man in a rowboat came to offer to take him to safety. But the stranded man declined the offer by shouting back, No thanks, I believe God will save me. After this, a motorboat came by, but still the man declined to jump in for the same reason and replied, No thanks, I believe God will save me. Finally, a helicopter flew in, but again, the stranded man refused to get on board, still holding on to his belief that God would save him. As the story goes, the waters continued to rise and the stranded man drowned. When he got to heaven, he complained about the situation to God. God, I had faith in you, but you didn't save me. Why did you let me down? The man begged to know. To this, God replied, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? This story provides great insight into the ways God provides for us. Similar to the stranded man, we often expect God to meet our needs in a certain way. If the provision doesn't come in this way, we are then tempted to feel that God didn't uphold His promise. But we must understand that God has more than one way to provide. Yes, for some, God's provision is made through a well-paying job or some financial favor. For others, though, He provides through other means, such as gifts from other believers. Winkler continues, I've even experienced God's provision through the blessing of friendship. During my transition into ministry, there was a period when I didn't have health insurance. In this time, at least two situations arose that required emergency attention. 
Thankfully, years before, the Lord connected me with a physician who became my best friend. In these situations, my friend was kind enough to perform the procedures I needed, which saved me thousands of dollars. So my friends, let's remember to trust God knowing that as long as we are living out the scriptural truths in our lives, then we currently are experiencing God's very best in our lives, even if we may not fully understand everything that is going on. Now you may wonder why Jesus would choose, in submission to God the Father's will, that His first miracle would be to change water into wine. Verse 11 tells us the reason. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Verse 11 clearly states that this was the very first miracle of Jesus, and it was done to show His glory. Jesus does miraculous things to show forth the glory of God, and in the process, His followers believed. You see, biblical principle number four is this. Biblical principle number four, God's ways and timing demonstrate His glory, thus deepening our faith and trust. God's ways and timing demonstrate His glory, thus deepening our faith and trust. As Steve Larson writes, the Bible speaks of glory in two different ways that must be distinguished. The first is God's intrinsic glory. This is the sum and substance of all that God is. This glory represents the whole of His divine being. It includes all the perfections of His divine attributes. This intrinsic glory is forever the same, never increasing or decreasing. From everlasting to everlasting, God is. He who was and is and who is to come. We cannot give God intrinsic glory. We cannot add or take away from who He is. Now, the Bible also speaks of His ascribed glory. This is the only rightful response to beholding His intrinsic glory. This is the glory you must give to Him. The more we apprehend God's intrinsic glory, the more we will ascribe glory to Him. The greater our knowledge of God, the greater will be our worship of Him. A high view of God will invoke high praise for Him. The person who grows to know God more deeply will praise Him more fervently. My friends, God's intrinsic glory is revealed through Jesus' miracle to change water into wine. And this brought out ascribed glory to God as the disciples believed and those in the wedding who knew of this miracle would surely praise God for an embarrassment averted. All of the miracles of Jesus show forth God's intrinsic glory so that we will give Him ascribed glory. So as we have learned, number one, God's ways and timing do not necessarily coincide with our human expectations, so we need to learn to trust. Number two, God's ways and timing may be unusual and unconventional, but He knows what He's doing. Number three, God's ways and timing are always for our best, even if we don't receive what we initially ask for. And number four, God's ways and timing demonstrate His glory, thus deepening our faith and trust. Let me end with this story. It's a story of a king who was seated in a garden, and one of his counselors was speaking of the wonderful works of God. Show me a sign, said the king, and I will believe. Here are four acorns, said the counselor. Will you, majesty, plant them in the ground, and then stoop down for a moment and look into this clear pond of water? The king did so. Now, said the counselor, look up. The king looked up and saw four oak trees where he had planted the acorns. Wonderful, he exclaimed. This is indeed the work of God. 
The counselor asked the king, How long were you looking into the water? Only a second, said the king. But your majesty, the counselor replied, Eighty years have passed as a second. And the king looked at his garment, and they were threadbare. He looked again at his reflection in the water. He had become an old man. There is no miracle here then, the king said angrily. But the counselor replied, No, your majesty, it's a miracle. It's God's work, whether he did it in one second or in 80 years. My friends, we live every day with nature all around us, the nature that God has created. We experience natural processes that God has put in place that make this universe operational. And with every breath that we take, God's miraculous mighty power can be seen in the fact that we have life. Miracles are happening every day in our lives. So let us all live by faith, looking to God's greatness and power and fully trusting in His ways and timing, which is for our best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the reminder of how You work and operate. Lord, at times we do not see that miracles are happening any time in our lives. But if we look through the lenses of how You are miraculously at work in our lives to give us breath of life, to let us live in this world, Father, it points us and reminds us of the greatness of who You are. Help us to trust You with all of our lives, knowing that although we may not fully understand what's happening, we can trust in a God who has everything under control. Lord, we love You and we thank You. Continue to teach us so that we can grow deeper in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.